Great to see you all. Thank you for being here. Always lovely to learn a little Torah together to start off our Tuesday, or maybe we've been going for a while with this Tuesday already. <laughs> so um, uh, very excited to be at Malacha 26 with you already. And I'm sorry I'm on this computer. My other one is having uh, headset problems. So I tried multiple headsets. It wasn't working. So <clears throat> I'll have to get that resolved. Uh, but I'm glad I have this backup. So um, uh, we are at Shochet. Now we did a lot of animal stuff last week. And so uh, I'll touch on that in the presentation, but I really want to go beyond it as well uh, to be sure we're covering a range of, of diverse topics. So um, here we go. When the Mishkan was built, hides need, needed to be prepared. The first step, as we saw in Malacha 25, was sud, trapping. This malacha, like its predecessor, challenges us to wrestle with our ethical responsibilities as compassionate people, killing creatures in the name of sanctifying holy spaces. This is shochet. As in the case with trapping, if one's life is at risk, one may kill an animal to protect themselves. Few of us ever presented with the possibility of killing a chicken or a cow on Shabbat, but the Talmud says that killing a tiny insect is the same as killing a camel. That is from the Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 107b. Further, with the Malacha of Shochet, we're not only concerned with killing, but also with causing an animal, including a human being, to bleed. So we're going to think about blood together. Thus, some people will refrain from brushing or flossing their teeth if they know it will lead to bleeding. We define four distinct biblical and post-biblical eras with regard to the Jewish relationship to eating meat. The first, the Garden of Eden, of course, the tradition is clear that was a vegan diet in the Garden of Eden. Then is post-flood. In a post-flood era, wait a minute, who's that guy on the left over there? 
<laughs> is that is this Christian art? Uh, um, anyways, okay, the Garden of Eden, and there's some guy who's visiting the garden. Uh, and then someone up there on the top also. <laughs> uh, okay, then second era is a post-flood era, eating only sacrificial meat to avoid the bloodshed of humans. Then, um, and just to unpack that, the idea there was after the killing of Cain and Abel and the world turned violence, that humans should use animals as scapegoats, basically. That that we should take out our, our bloodthirst on animals instead of on other humans. The third is a post-temple era, eating non-sacrificial meat, kosher meat prepared locally as humanely as possible. And the fourth is a factory farming era, the oppressive torture of animals present, presented as kashrut, immersed into capitalism and prioritizing profits and meat accessibility over the local humane treatment of animals. Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook taught that in the Messianic era, humanity would return to the Garden of Eden model with even the temple service, including the flower offering, as we discussed last week, but not allowing animal offerings in the third temple. As he explained, it is impossible to imagine the master of all things who has mercy on all creation, making it impossible for the human race to survive except by shedding blood, even the blood of animals. We know that when the Torah teaches the concept, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, it is referring to human beings. That's what you quote when you want to be anti-genocide. I'm, I'm speaking about the Uyghur crisis again for Hillel students around the, around the world in a few weeks, the Uyghur genocide. And they say, give us some Torah, Torah to say why Jews should care about genocide. And of course, you don't even have to talk about history or about the Shoah. The first text you always point to is Lo Tamod al Damreyecha. Do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. That is the basic, basic commandment, biblical commandment. To, uh, uh, to prevent us being bystanders towards uh, uh, evil done towards other, in particular in regards to shedding blood. And when we think of bloodshed, we tend to think of human beings. But the Sefer Achinuch condemns the indiscriminate killing of animals, as we call, as well, calling it bloodshed. He writes, but to kill them, that is animals, without any benefit involves wanton destruction and is called bloodshed. And even though it is not like the bloodshed of a person, due to the superiority of a human and the inferiority of an animal, it is called bloodshed. Now, um, it's interesting how we're wired differently. I remember as a kid, my brother had a BB gun, something I never would have played with. I was always a scared kid and he was kind of the adventurous one. And uh, he had a BB gun. And I remember coming outside and seeing he had lined up like a dozen birds that he had somehow shot with his BB gun. He was a little boy. I don't even know how he did this. And I was just so overwhelmed by it. I thought it was cool because he was powerful. I thought it was disgusting. I thought it was scary. But I just, I have this image so ingrained in my head. Maybe you have something like that the first time you saw someone engage in a similar act. Now, here's an interesting poem. You may not know much about Shmuel Hanagid, and, and I actually don't know much about him either. But here's an interesting poem I discovered by Shmuel Hanagid called The Market. The Market. I crossed through a sook with the, where the butchers hung oxen and sheep at their sides. There were birds and herds of fatlings like squid, their terror loud as blood congealed over blood, and slaughterers' knives opened veins. In booths alongside them, the fishmongers, and fish in, fish in heaps and tackle like sand, and beside them, the street of the bakers, whose ovens are fired through dawn. They bake, they eat, they lead their prey, they split what's left to bring home. And my heart understood how they did it and asked, who are you to survive? What separate, separates you from these beasts, which were born and knew waking and labor and rest 
If they hadn't been given by God for your meals, they'd be free. If he wanted, so there he's affirming the idea that animals are given to humans for food. Um, if he wanted this instant, he'd easily put you in their place. They've breath like you and hearts with, which scatter them over the earth. There was never a time when the living didn't die, nor the young that they bear not give birth. Pay attention to this, you pure ones, and princess, and excuse me, and princes so calm in your fame, know if you'd fathom the worlds of the hidden. <coughs> this is the law of man. So this is a fascinating uh, kind of existentialist uh, reflection. He's not dealing with ethics. He's not giving imperatives. He's not dealing with law. He's merely expressing kind of an existential encounter and what it awakes for him, awakens for him theologically. My grandfather at one point was a butcher. Um, and uh, maybe you had encounters also with kind of the world of, of slaughter. Uh, maybe they were positive, maybe they were negative, maybe they were neither. But they're fascinating to think about um, how, those, um, how those impact us. When I was in yeshiva in Israel, it was right next to a dairy farm and I would go for long walks and I would look at these cows um, at this dairy farm where they were outdoors as well. So uh, it's worth thinking about how those encounters kind of shape this experience for us. And if you also dabble in believing in reincarnation, what we call Gilgalim, Gilgalei HaNeshama, um, then you might also think about this idea of what does it mean for us to have souls that also pass through um, non-human animal bodies or that in the future may do so as well? Um, and what does that mean for our own consciousness? Not only should we recoil from the shedding of animal blood as we do from human blood, we should also consider bloodshed to be an assault on the divine creation as well. By definition, shedding human blood is an attack on the divine image. There's a lot of Talmudic encounters with gladiator fights and how the rabbis were so turned off by um, this Roman um, um, understanding of sport. Um, and, uh, and, and even going so far to say that it was asur, it was forbidden by Jewish law to attend gladiator fights, um, you know. Uh, I, I, I'm always astounded. I, again, I never, I never wish to offend by people who enjoy boxing today. You know, I, I find that the NFL itself so, um, so uh, <laughs> uh, uh, problematic, but boxing itself is like so vicious and, and causes brain damage and promotes violence. It's I, maybe someone can explain to me because I, I can't understand how someone finds entertainment in people beating up each other but maybe there's some dimension I'm missing to the art, the art of fighting. Um, in any case, here's what it says over here, a famous parable, a Jewish parable. A king of flesh and blood entered a province and the people set up portraits of him, made images of him and struck coins in his honor. Later on, they upset his portraits, broke his images and defaced his coins, thus diminishing the likeness of the king. So also, if one shed blood, it is accounted to him as though he had diminished the divine image. For it, it is said, the shedder of human blood for human beings were made in the image of God. What a fascinating idea. I mean, this is so obvious to us as Jews, Jews who have learned anything. It's so obvious. But it's not obvious to people in the world. The idea that shedding human blood is diminishing the divine image in the world. You know, I mean, how powerful is that? Like in the old Platonic ancient world, People thought there were elites whose blood was redder than others. If you were poor, if you were uneducated, your blood didn't matter as much. Um, and thankfully, we live in a democratic era 
where the question of vaccination triage, vaccination triage is not about your education or about your wealth. It's about your age. It's about your vulnerability. It's about your exposure. And um, um, uh, my wife actually, Shoshana, is getting vaccinated in, uh, in an hour or so since she's a healthcare worker. And this is very exciting. We're talking about what bracha to make because we should make a blessing. We should make a blessing or say a tefillah, say, say a prayer uh, at, before. Of course, before a bracha, you're supposed to make an action after. Almost always, the action follows the bracha. There are some limited cases where you do an action and then a bracha, but this is why, for example, sometimes you're supposed to add an action. We're, we're taking a little tangent here. You're supposed to add a little action after the bracha if the action is before. Who can give an example? What's an example where the, where the action is before the bracha? Anyone? Lighting Shabbat candles. Ah, oh, so beautiful. Okay, so some of us might in, embrace gender differences. Some of us may not. But let me explain a gender difference traditionally on this particular point. The idea was that men accept Shabbat in their Kabbalah Shabbat prayers and women accept Shabbat through their lighting candles, okay? Um, you may like that idea, you might not like, like it, but that was kind of the traditional idea. And that is why traditionally when, if men light Shabbat candles, they are supposed to, um, they are supposed to, um, uh, make the bracha uh, after the lighting. Um, sorry, let me just think for one moment. Um, oh, no, oh yes, I'm sorry. No, no, you said it right, Lauren. That if a woman lights, wh wh what's the order, Lauren, of, of how you do it? First you light the candle, then you, you know, cover your eyes. Okay, great. And then you make the bracha. And my oh, meaning was you don't accept Shabbat exactly. yeah. it, uh, until after. Exactly. You can also with Great. Yes, exactly. Beautiful, Lauren. So you don't want to ex you don't want to accept Shabbat and then light a flame, right? Traditionally, we don't want to light a flame. So you light the you light the candles. You do the act of fire, creating fire, and then you make the blessing, accepting Shabbat. But if a man traditionally lights candles, they do the opposite, right? Because they're, they're, the intention is not to be accepting Shabbat um, they're, they're, with kind of an intentionality as such, they make the bracha and then they light and then they'll still accept, accept Shabbat in the prayer. So that's kind of an interesting difference there. So, that, so that's a great example. Um, uh, now, another example would be washing hands. Usually, if one is washing their hands for motzi, one would wash their hands and then say al netilat yadayim, right? The, the bracha over washing hands. And that is why traditionally part of the mitzvah is drying the hands. You say the bracha not while you're drying. You say the bracha and then you dry because it's, it's called uh, over liyasiyatan. It's called in the Talmud over liyasiyatan, which means there, there should always be an action following a bracha. A bracha of a mitzvah, uh, right? Of course, there's brachot of, of gratitude, there's brachot of praise, but a bracha, a birchat a mitzvah, a birchat a mitzvah, you should have an action. So you wash, so you say, you, you wash your hands, you say the blessing, then you dry the hands. Okay, so why are we talking about all that? Uh, oh yeah, so the bracha on vaccination. I'm wondering if um, um, we want to actively do something. If we make a bracha 
and then someone vaccinates me, I'm wondering what is the action we should make after we've said the bracha before the medical professional um, vaccinates. And, and that's something I'm thinking about today. So if you have ideas, I'd love to hear what, what bracha you're gonna make um, and what action you might do to affirm, right? Maybe like tap, maybe tap the part of the skin or something to be like, I'm affirming that this part of my arm or wherever they're doing it um, is where it should go. In any case, um, so anyways, so vaccination is a fascinating thing. And this is one of the ways we could understand lo tamodo damreacha, don't stand by the blood of, of your neighbor. I'm sorry if I'm offending, I don't think we have any anti-vaxxers here, um, but if I am, I'm sorry if I'm offending. Um, in any case, um, the idea here uh, that lo tamodo damreacha, to not get vaccinated, could potentially be a violation of this biblical mitzvah of shedding blood uh, by not protecting those around us. Okay, we are not only told not to shed blood, but we're instructed that if we have the capacity to save life, we must all do so to save it, right? Just a reminder, we have mitzvot ase, mitzvot lotase. Ase means a mitzvah to do, lotase means a mitzvah of not to do. So the, so the, the, the lotase is lotamera damrecha, don't stand by. The ase is pikuach nefesh, saving life. It says over here in the Shulchan Aruch, the Torah gave permission to the physicians to heal. Moreover, this is a religious requirement and it is included in the category of saving life. And if the physician withholds services, it is considered as if they were shedding, as if they were shedding blood. Okay, now there's a lot of ambivalence in early sources around medical professionals. Uh, some who think it's magic. Of course, this is all pre-modern science, so it's not super amazing science anyways. Um, but uh, some, who are, some who think that magic is all kind of uh, voodoo, some who think that it's, it's neither here nor there, you're allowed to do it, but you don't have to do it, and some who think there's an obligation to engage in healing, and there's an obligation to heal. This puts doctors in a, in a, or med any medical professionals in a predicament of what does it mean if someone is not, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, insured? And I guess you Canadians don't have to worry about this, right? But in America, we have this horrible, yes, Lauren. <laughs> in America- But I'm a Canadian. Yeah, yes, uh, we should all follow Canada. Uh, Absolutely. But in, in this American abomination where people can actually not receive uh, healthcare because they're not insured, um, this is uh, by every, is every stretch of the imagination of, uh, um, of, of, of Jewish imagination, an abomination um, to, to deny someone of, uh, of this. In any case, if someone wasn't insured and they're a medical professional and they had to turn someone away, this would be a Jewish problem to turn someone away. Um, for, what does that medical professional do? In any case, here, okay, here we're gonna get into, into some chassidus, some chassidut here. Rabbi Nachman teaches a spiritual lesson based on the idea of humans, of humans having blood. He teaches that we uphold the divine honor by not responding to attacks. When people attack us and we don't respond to it, he writes that dam, what does dam mean? Human blood, dam is blood, represents the yetzer, the human desire for instant gratification. When someone critiques or attacks us, our blood rises and our natural incl inclination is to want to lash out and criticize and attack back. He offers us the chance for a meditation when we move from dam, blood, to dome, silence or stillness. In this way, we gain control of our impulses by moving our hot blood to slow stillness, right? Just to flesh, flesh that out, if it's not totally clear, 
Dalid Mem. Dalid Mem is blood. It is also silence or stillness. Biologically, when we are angry, our blood is racing. Our blood is racing. Um, and um, that's why it rushes to our face. We get tense, right? We have these biological, physiological, physiological reactions. And he's saying the spiritual act of moving dom to dome, of moving this blood motion towards stillness or silence in responding to the heat of the moment of an attack or a critique where we want to, um, we want to lash out. Now, of course, um, from evolutionary uh, history, we know that, th that it's very productive that our blood does this. It's preparing us to uh, respond, preparing us to respond. Um, uh, nonetheless, it's giving, a, and, and, it's, and it is releasing, it is releasing um, hormones such that we receive the energy, right? In, in a moment of rage, what, we, what can happen? And yet spiritually, we know um, the, the, the art of restraint. Okay, we can learn a different but fascinatingly sensitive lesson when we read about blood from the Exodus story. The first plague, the first Makkah, turned the Nile River to blood, right? God says to Moshe, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Mitzrayim, over Egypt, and they shall become blood. But the commentators wonder here as to why Moshe doesn't do it himself. Why does he need his brother Aaron to accompany him? Ever think about this? Why does Moshe need Aaron here? Rashi writes that Moses couldn't do the deed himself. Any, any ideas? Why, why couldn't Moshe do it? due to his gratitude for having been saved in the river as an infant. From this teaching, we learn how gratitude can be channeled into personal responsibility. That goes along with what you're saying over there, Cheryl. Gratitude to the person giving the vaccination. I love that. The oh, that's great. That's what we could say after the, after the bracha. Um, that's great. Thank you for doing the work you're doing, right? Exposing yourself on the front lines and doing this holy, holy work. Um, so how can we ever har harm something that has assisted us? It's like, there's this tree in my backyard that I've wanted to cut down because it's always dropping grapefruits and we don't like grapefruits. You ever had that, that first world Arizona problem? Like, ugh, get rid of this tree. I don't want the citrus fruits to pick up. It's like such a beautiful bracha to have a tree, a backyard, citrus fruit. But then it's like, I want to cut it down because I don't want the fruits on my grass. Right? In any case, I'm like, oh, this tree, my kids swing from it and it gives us shade and the gratitude. How could I ever cause harm to this? So too, Moshe could do, could bring the maca himself. Moshe could take his staff and touch it to the river and turn it to blood. And nonetheless, he needs someone else to do it because he was saved out of this river. And to honor that story, he can't be the one to do it. He can't be the one to do it. It would kind of be like um, if I was a health professional, I couldn't give my parent the shot, right? Even though it's only a mitzvah, actually it might be forbidden for a child to give their parent a shot because you're not allowed to wound a parent. It's, it's a prohibition in the Torah to strike a parent or to wound them. And even though a shot is healing, you're wounding them. And so it might, it might actually be a problem. Of course, in a life death situation where that was the only option, of course it's, it's the case. Um, but it might be that um, 
that um, uh, let's say someone was gonna you know help their parent die. Um, that th th I, I think this would be an interesting application to this case. Someone was gonna help their parent die compassionately, or let me say it differently, help them stop living. Um, it might be that they want a medical professional to do the act rather than themselves. Um, not only um, because psychologically, but also because of this relationship, this gratitude. It might feel like an act of love, and maybe it is an act of love, but to do it directly. I'll give you another case, and this is only my squeamishness, not my spirituality. Um, I, I can't remember if in, the, in my last childbirth um, I did this or not. I, 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 it's funny that I've totally blanked it out. I feel like in the fourth case I did, uh, but in the first cases I couldn't. The doctor asked me if I want to cut the cord, if I wanted to cut the cord, and I could never cut the cord. Um, I just felt like, like, I don't know what this cord is. Is this my baby? Is this my wife? Is this like a life force that's connecting my baby and my wife? It's incredibly intense. But the idea of me cutting that just felt like beyond, uh, you know, spiritually, psychologically what I could do. And that's not only my own squeamishness. Anyways, blood is sacred. In particular, our, our blood is sacred. It is our source of life. Um, this is true for all blood, not just our own. This understanding can prevent us from moving into tribalism. The rabbis taught, one came from Rabbah, from Rabbah, and said to him, this is from um, the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 74a, one came before Rabbah and said to him, the governor of my town has ordered me, go and kill so-and-so. If not, I will slay you. What shall I do? He answered him, let him rather slay you than you should commit murder. But who knows that your blood is redder? That's the famous Talmudic quote. Who knows your blood is redder? Perhaps his blood is redder, right? Um, who's to say that your blood is more valuable? Actually, I was thinking about this morning. I signed a petition this morning. Um, I, I, uh, there may be multiple reactions on this here. The umbilical blood is used in research. Yes, Eileen, thank you for that. Oh, and thank you, Harlan. Uh, I gave my mom injections to treat her tuberculosis. That's only a mitzvah. And let me let me pull back. And yeah, and Lauren, I gave my mom her insulin, but that's only, yeah. So, and so, yeah, let me pull back on there. It is only a mitzvah to assist a parent in such regards. Um, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm referring to a kind of an abstract case, uh, but I, I don't want to take away from any, any aspect of the mitzvah of, of assisting a parent as a caregiver. Um, and, and in assisting in that is only a wonderful, beautiful thing. So it's a rare, it's a rare case I'm referring to over here. In any case, uh, I signed a petition this morning around uh, people in Gaza getting access to the vaccination. Um, people in Gaza, because you may have heard there's some politics of triage over there. And who is responsible for the Palestinian people being vaccinated? Is it the PA? Is it Hamas? Is it the Arab world? Is it Israel? Is it the World Health Organization? Who is responsible? And the fact that there is um, um, the fact of the current political dynamics uh, indicates that Israel needs to play some role in ensuring, not only out of self-interest, but as a humanitarian concern, that people have access. In any case, there's more to talk about there. Let me wrap up here, the last two paragraphs. Blood serves a deep purpose. It courses through a body with the beating of the heart, finding its way with the powerful constriction and relaxation of the arteries, moving along through the progressively smaller vessels until it reaches the tiny capillaries, 
where it nourishes the cells. With its ebb and flow, it reminds us of our fragility, of our mortality. For this reason, Eov, known as Job, cries, O earth, do not conceal my blood. Let there not be a place for my screams. Six days of the week, we see blood being spilled along the road, and we dare not stand idly by. On Shabbat, we don't look at the blood. As we experience me'ein olam haba, a day on which we feel ourselves to be living in the world to come, we imagine ourselves to be eternal and angelic, not frail mortal human beings. Further, we imagine that all blood is equal, representing the life source gifted from God to all beings who need it down on earth. A human, a camel, and even a fly with a blood that's called hemolymph. Is that how you pronounce it? Hemolymph. The hemolymph. Hemolymph. All share this gift. We all share this gift. We dare not draw blood from anywhere. After Shabbat, we return to a broken hierarchical world where we protect our quote-unquote own humans before our enemies, humans before animals and land animals before insects. May Shabbat sensitize us to the sanctity of all blood and may the consciousness of dam, of blood, bring us to dome, stillness. Okay, friends, we are half past the hour. I'd love to hear from you. on any of these matters or others. So Shmuley, what's um, the Shabbos idea concerning menstrual blood? You can't stop it, but women will have it. So what are the rules concerning that? Oh, um, there, yeah, there's nothing in regards to uh, Shabbat. I mean, uh, in regards to uh, menstruation, women will, you know, go about business as usual in, in such a regard. Uh, the only implication would be um, the idea of uh, doing, a, doing a check, those who have the practice, practice of checking their menstruation, of doing that before sunset. Um, but in other regards, and I, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, and this is obviously beyond me to share, um, but around how we need more Jewish ritual for girls experiencing, young girls experiencing menstruation, to honor that journey and mm -hmm. bring sanctity to that confusing journey for young girls. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm thinking about that. My daughter turns eight in a month. Um, obviously, menstruation starts at very different times for, for girls. Uh, but I, I think I shared a, a, about 10 sessions ago um, that, um, that my, my niece, my niece-in-law uh, called my wife um, and, uh, and, and, I, and the first thing I heard my wife say was Mazel Tov. Uh, and, and I said, have you ever got a call like that before? And said Mazel Tov. She said, no, it just felt like the natural thing to say. And she had called and said, oh, I just got my first, um, my first period. Um, and so, uh, and uh, and, uh, and so anyways, uh, yeah, Shabbat around the menstruation, it's an interesting thing because you're picking up, Eileen, there on my last point, this point about looking away from blood on Shabbat. And so what does it mean for a woman or, or a, young, a young woman who, um, who, needs to, who needs to look at that blood? 
Um, and how does that factor into the equation? It's a great question. And I'm curious if others have thoughts on that, given that I've never experienced it. Like how might, how might a Shabbat consciousness towards menstruation um, be cultivated? Anyone have a thought on that? I, I, would, yeah, I would make the comment and not particularly about that instance, but that the whole discussion about blood often um, involves um, thinking about blood as coming from um, either an act of violence or a wound or something to be staunched and that women have a whole other relationship to blood. You know, if you start menstruating at the age of 13 and stop around 50, that's like what, 36 years of dealing with that and after, you know, three births. Um, and so it's almost as if we have to um, um, deal with, there is a dissonance between our experience of blood and that of what the culture, you know, automatically views blood or shedding blood. So I just wanted to make that comment. It comes up for me. Yeah, thank you. That That's fascinating. Anybody else want to add on to that? Yeah, um, Shmuley, if you can come up with some kind of a ritual, I have two granddaughters who will be looking forward to getting their first period. I think this would be great if we could start something. Yeah, so Eileen, what do you think ought to be some of the emotions that should emerge um, in such an experience. Okay. Don't forget ought to. I mean, how do yeah. you think we might respond to some of the natural emotions that emerge? My parents were very, very smart because I got the mazel tov, you're a woman now, isn't that great? So it was handled in a positive manner. I never felt that this was the curse or my burden. And I basically think that that's how we should handle our children and grandchildren that this is something that is awe-inspiring and it's a mitzvah to get. Okay, so uh, good, amazing. So, and to add on to that, what is another dimension in addition to the fertility dimension, right? Because one obvious reaction to the blood and its sanctity is that it indicates um, fertility. Um, but fertility uh, implies that um, uh, that the primary relationship to the body is one of production or reproduction. Is there another experiential domain aside from fertility or reproduction that, that a young girl might tap into? Is there um, sacredness? Go back to the temple. Didn't they... Um, cut the animal on the altar and have the blood drip and wasn't oh, 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 that's fascinating. The wasn't idea of, you know, you know here's, a, here's a thought and tell me if this, if this goes over well or not. Um, what, you're draw, what you're drawing off is what we were talking about last week, korbanot, sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea of, of uh, 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 um, what is it called? A uterine line, the shedding of a uterine line. Is that what we call it? Lining, yeah. Uterine lining. So the shedding of a uterine lining as a korban. It's I mean, this might be. This, tell me if this if this rings if this if this uh, resonates at all or not. This idea of like not. Uh, Lauren says no. Um, this idea of like an offering towards God, the shedding of a uterine line. Thinking of this as a korban, almost like. Um, but then there's a contradiction as to when a girl menstruates, she's not supposed to handle the Torah or be on the bima. Oh, who, who just said that? That's not true. Yeah, who just Carolyn. said that? Oh, Carolyn. Carolyn. Yes, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Lauren is right. This is um, I'm not going to use I'm not going to use fighting words for that principle, but this is an idea that I want to push strongly back against. That women who are in menstruating should not touch the Torah. <laughs> that in some way these women are impure or unclean. These are bad translations of uh, of those ancient practices, and and many men have issued such such laws to indicate that this is the reason women shouldn't carry Torahs in, in shul because they might be menstruating. But this has been debunked. In fact, this last week, a great posek died. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Herzl Henkin. And he was one of the great um, um, uh, innovators in Jewish law around, uh, around women's uh, empowerment and opportunities. And he wrote a very long piece on this issue of women's, uh, women, you know, handling the Torah and debunking this idea, if I recall correctly, um, mm. of, of uh, menstruation having being any barrier whatsoever. Great, great so, to hear. <laughs> I, I would offer something because I've led a number of rituals with um, women, you know, young women in our family, that, that there is an approach that is acknowledging a lineage that is even preceded Torah and it's continuing. It's the lineage of the women that are passing on in their DNA through this blood lineage. Oh, not only fertility, wow. it's wow. knowledge, it's tradition, some of which were absorbed in our, you know, religious tradition uh, taught. Oh, my goodness. But this is ancient and it's acknowledging we've done a ritual with the red the sacred red string, tying it around everybody's wow. wrist and then cutting it and you carry that. So <clears throat> it's imparting a blessing from the mothers, the foremothers to this and, and acknowledging that this young woman is now being initiated into this tradition wow. you know, with the blood flowing. So right. we can look to find it, you know, um, elements, sorry, my voice is really bad this morning in uh, the Torah or the art, you know, art, tradition that we're holding mostly by men, let's face it, until the past 20 years or so. Yeah. But this is a very ancient lineage. It's our blood, it's our DNA, and it's acknowledging that not only fertility, but knowledge, et cetera, so. Wow, this is so powerful, um, what you're saying, Andrea, and um, on the, that all in encountering this blood, and rather than feel the shame of this impurity or uncleanliness of this, the thing that this represents on one level, Jewish continuity, the blood, like you said, is the blood of our ancestors. Um, and, um, and, and of course, that doesn't work for a woman who's converted to Judaism. And so uh, in regards to Jewish continuity, but it still implies to the, to the relationship to one's ancestors that that blood represents that DNA. I love that. Right. It's a larger lineage. It's, a, it's the lineage of women, of the female. Yes. Yes. Great. Great. Vicki. Yeah, Vicki. I was just going to say, um, to Andrew's point, maybe it's no accident um, that the whole notion of coming of age and the whole ritual of a bat mitzvah comes at the time when many young girls are beginning to menstruate. Um, and that whole motif of the bloodline and the lineage is often used, um, in my granddaughter's it was, um, in her bat mitzvah ceremony, uh, where this whole idea of passing the Torah on know, actually physically passing the Torah on, it's done in a lot of different congregations, um, is very, I think it's very powerful. 
uh, and it's a very positive way of doing it. The second thing I wanted to say, and I think Stan mentioned Nita, is the whole, all of the laws of ritual purity um, can be interpreted as this whole notion of, of not being clean um, at the time that you're menstruating. And that's very hard to get away from that. Um, and for those of us in contemporary life to understand it and also understand this whole uh, that focus and the emphasis on fertility uh, in traditional Jewish life, which those of us who are mothers uh, revel, I guess, in that to an extent that we were able to have children or to see our children have children, which is perhaps one of the greater gifts of life. But there still seems to be in a contemporary way, that's not the only thing that women do. And that's the only way for them to be acknowledged or to realize their full potential. Beautiful, beautiful, Vicki. Thank you so much for that. Um, I wonder if mikvah could also be part of that. I mean, well, mikvah can be great joy or sorrow if you're trying to get pregnant and then you, it doesn't happen and you go to the mikvah again. But, but when I was in Israel, I experienced like this beautiful ceremony that Svardi Yod have and they do it with the kala at the mikvah. And um, they, they pass out sweets and, you know, it's a whole party. And I'm wondering, I mean, okay, a girl who's 12 is not going to have to go to the mikvah for a long time. But wouldn't it be beautiful when she finishes her period to go to the mikvah and let her have that feeling of, um, of, of the purity and being renewed and having a whole party with the female relatives and and friends. I mean, there could be some really beautiful stuff around Mikvah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And um, yeah, I think that would also help to reaffirm the notion that Mikvah is not purely about a sexual relationship, but an affirmation of one's own body, of one's own spirituality, regardless of any sexual relationship. To start for a young girl with a Mikvah experience. Um, yeah. Or yeah, so that's very powerful. Thank you, Lauren, for that. Okay, someone else, please. Hi, Rabbi. What are your thoughts on when uh, shedding blood saves lives, uh, like blood transfusions, uh, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, yeah, so um, uh, yeah, so shedding shedding blood to save life, of course, um, is is a crucial thing to do. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's generally considered to not be a Shabbat activity. Um, or once again, there's some complexities around doing it for family members, if, if one doesn't have to. Um, but yeah, um, you know, or, um, or, and then there's the obvious cases like dialysis. Um, you know, uh, dialysis uh, is so incredibly intense and tragic uh, and, and such, um, a profound relationship one can have to, to their, um, to their blood, seeing it being filtered through these machines, um, and the, the those who are struggling with renal failure, and of course who need dialysis on Shabbat, um, uh, and actually interesting. Rabbi David Feinstein recently passed away just a few months ago. There's been so many rabbis who have died over this last year, like unprecedented numbers. Um, um, in any case, he said that um, that one can one can stop dialysis. I mean, this is might be obvious to many of us, but just like one can stop receiving other types of treatments, one can stop dialysis as well. 
But in any case, yeah, blood shedding in order to save life, of course, is also imperative. Uh, it's also true in, in the war sense of, or self-defense, this, this, this obligation to, to shed blood in, in a mechamit mitzvah, in, a, in, in an obligatory war or an obligatory form of self-defense of, of, of shedding blood. Shmuley, what about donating blood? That, that's in the same thing. I mean, a blood transfusion is a, a direct kind of um, a process, but just to donate blood to give to a stranger who might match you and will save the life, I mean, that would be something. Great point. That's a great point. Excellent. Thank you, Cheryl. Yeah, that's, it's, it's really amazing that we're able to do such things in our, in our own era. We're able to donate blood to save lives. It's it's and, and I think we haven't elevated enough yet in the Jewish community the, the imperative when 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 one can do that safely. I, I have something else too. I wanted to go back to Vicky's point of, of the, the the bat mitzvah at age twelve as opposed to age thirteen for a boy. I mean, it is that just uh was that just a a designation from the powers that be. The, yeah. the, the, the male rabbis <laughs> that yeah, decided that this is, when, no, this is, this is when a, a girl can be, become, may become a woman. Right. Just like a, the designation of the 13 year old boy who was, it was decided that at 13, a boy could become a man. And, and, and yet I know the, the background of this is because the rabbi said, well, if he has two pubic hairs, then he's capable of taking care of the sheep or whatever, <laughs> whatever other manly responsibilities, um, you know, yeah. that, that were designated. So yeah. it's, it's really, thanks, Cheryl. Yeah, it's such a fascinating um, history to think about the rabbinic understanding of maturation. Um, their understanding that, that girls, which of course is true, generally mature faster than, 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 than boys. Um, but also that, that biological maturation in some ways represents cognitive maturation, which we know not to necessarily <laughs> uh, be true, that a 12-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy, um, you know, are, uh, you know are, 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 not, are not fully capable. As you know, from developmental psychology, we created this, uh, this period called emerging adulthood from 18 to 26. Um, and that 26 has been extended even higher um, and our understanding and modernity of just how much, how much it takes for someone to be a mature adult and our understanding legally around culpability. When is someone cognitively aware enough that they can be fully culpable in, in, uh, legally for, for committing a crime? Um, and, and more and more we're seeing that eight, um, even though 18 is a legal adult in most senses, 18 might not be enough. The brain is not fully developed at 18. Um, in regards to impulse control and the like. I mean, uh, it's, it's really astounding. And so I actually think, and this might sound a little bit radical, that, that the time period we really need to ritualize, rather than when, when someone is going to continue to live at home for the next six years, is the senior year of high school. The senior year of high school is such a dramatic shift for, uh, for a young man or young woman who is about to transition um, oftentimes towards college or towards the workforce or out of foster care, depending on whatever their narrative is. Um, and that 
period of being 18 years old, entering the workforce or moving out of the home or going to college, uh, a narrative that many of us might be familiar with, but can look very different for other people, is really a time period where um, uh, we could use uh, the, uh, we could use more ritual. Yeah, Lauren, great point. Going into the Israeli army, if you're 18 and you're about to enter the IDF, you're going from like playing with twid you know tiddlywinks or whatever you call these toys to like handling a gun like out in the field or flying a, a you know being a paratrooper, San Khanim. I mean, it's it's what a transition. Um, and in many and, and 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 in the Hasidic world, you're getting married. Your mom, if you're getting married, I mean, if you're not already married, you're getting married. And so it's really interesting that we have this time period of 12 or 13, and then life goes about as, as usual. I think we could use more Jewish ritual around that transitional period, especially because um, that is a time period for, for many when their Judaism is, is, um, is, 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 their Jewish identity is diminishing. And the first year of college typically can be a very enhancing Jewish identity experience. Um, when one realizes if they're not going to a Jewish college, uh, they're, they're experiencing that in a new way. For me, it most certainly was. My first year of college was, was, uh, was very formative in my Jewish identity. I, I wonder if it was for you as well. But I'm curious about other thoughts on, on this, this idea of having Jewish rituals for 18-year-olds. Well, um, just to go back to the 12 and 13 year old, those, I mean, that's, a, that's an old ancient, you know, that, that, that was a, a custom from, a, you know, a prescription from, you know, days of yore, and that's just not how it is now. So 12 and 13, everything else has evolved. Children are, you know, going to college. Maybe they're taking a year off. Maybe they're, maybe they're, they're certainly getting married and having children much later than even, you know, than our generation even. So, you know, it's something that needs to, you know, either evolve or be rethought or whatever, because 12 and 13, I mean, you know, they're children still. <laughs> So Shmuley, correct me if I'm wrong, but my <laughs> understanding is the idea of 12 and 13 is because that's when you're responsible for your own mitzvot. Right. You're no longer considered a child. You're no longer on your mother. So at 13, for a boy 12 and you're a girl, you're, you're fasting on Yom Kippur, Tisha B'Av. Um, you're responsible <laughs> for your own um, keeping kosher. I mean, all the mitzvot are yours. And, and unfortunately in North America, um, and especially like a, among assimilated Jews, they forget the mitzvah and only remember the bar. Like they, they just like, it, it, it often it's, it's for a, a boy who'll never do another mitzvah in his life. Chaval, hopefully that will change. But I think that there's a loss of remembering what, what the whole intention is of bar and bat mitzvah. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. For, thank you for bringing us back to that. Tell me if this bracha sounds familiar. Baruch Hashem Shepatrani Me'onsho Shel Zeh. So this is the, um, the, the, the profoundly um, perhaps uh, um, unspiritual blessing that a parent uh, traditionally says at, at a, about a bar bat mitzvah, which says, I am, God, um, thank you, basically, blessed are you, God, Lord of the universe, who has freed me from, from the punishment of this child. The idea traditionally is that we are, that a parent is responsible and thus punishable for the sins of their child. But once they hit 12 or 13, they're now a, a, a Ben Torah, a Bat Torah, 
and are now responsible for themselves. And the parent can kind of wipe their hands of, of legal responsibility <laughs> for this child. Um, and that is when they take their own responsibility. That's why fasting, for example, um, the, the, the obligations kick in at that, that point. A child who's going to fast would start at that point or other things like that. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, so that, that is primarily what they're dealing with there. Not that you're now going to go move out of the house and, you know, and have a profession, but that you are now a morally, religiously responsible adult. The other way this plays out is um, that a, someone who is converted to Judaism as a child has the opportunity to denounce it or affirm it at, at their bar bat mitzvah. That is to say, you convert a, a, a three-month-old baby and that baby turns a 12-year-old girl. She can now say, I'm now um, reneging or, or what would be the right phrase? Um, I'm, what's that, Eileen? Disavowing. Disavowing. Perfect, perfect, Cheryl. Or Eileen, what's the word you were going to say? Oh, you're on mute again. <laughs> a renounce. A renounce, renounce, yeah. Renouncing or disavowing um, that Judaism. Uh, because as you know, as a Jew, you can never throw off your Judaism. I mean, you can stop identifying, but from the traditional perspective, even if you convert out, you know, you say, I'm a Christian now. Okay, so there are ramifications for such things, but one is still a Jew. Uh, but this is the one opportunity where one can kind of get rid of it, so to speak. Oh yes, Eileen, so your confirmation. So yeah, so the confirmation is a reform uh, uh, innovation, of course. And I think it's a powerful one. I think, I, I, you know, I'm a fan of the reform confirmation idea. This idea that a bar bat mitzvah happens and then a few years later you have a confirmation that you've studied more and it's not like there's any official status to the confirmation. It's an, it's an innovative idea. But the idea of adding an extra layer, layer of ritual. And, and I would love to see us put that in place for Jewish learning. When an adult has spent 30 years Jewish learning or 40 years, like how do we, how do we ritualize that? Someone who said, I did Torah, story, Torah study every week for 50 years or 40 years, right? There should be something that, that, that emerges from that. Um, and, and I think we can, we, we should think creatively about that. Andrea. So, you know, it's occurring to me that really what we're talking about and there's liturgy for, you know, what we mentioned that we know about, that these are liminal state, states when you're going from one um, um, status or one experience into another. And that they don't, you know, we can also spontaneously make something happen when there's not some liturgical um, opportunity when um, my last son went off to college, I missed this with my first one, my daughter, you know, my husband and I, we just stopped and we put our hands on him and we gave him our blessing, acknowledging because that's such a potent moment and all of a sudden it's done and it's gone. And that there are many opportunities, somebody's going on a trip, whatever, to take that moment because we don't know what's gonna happen in the next state and at making a blessing, you know, and connecting and, um, that these are spontaneous operate, uh, opportunities also, yeah. um, just that. Yeah, thank you, that's wonderful, I love that. I love that, thank you. Um, the, the confirmation class had about 12 kids in it, ages 15 and 16, and it met every week with our rabbi. 
And it started after the high holidays. And in June, we had a confirmation ceremony in a temple. All family members were invited. It was a big thing. And I think my class was the first to have the confirmation service. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, so, I, so I had a confirmation and it was only because the rabbi was showing up um, every week uh, also in some regard that I felt comfortable enough to ask her to go to coffee. And, and I had a list of 30 questions and she sat there patiently and worked through each of my questions. It was unbelievable. And I think about it all the time because I was just uh, some little punk kid. Actually, speaking of punks, uh, th this last, this, a few days ago, I was taking my, my, uh, my daughter and my son for a bike ride. And there was a guy who had blasting music, smoking a cigarette and drove real fast next to us. And I said to my kids, I said, that guy's a punk. He's a punk, that guy. And then I looked, they were confused. And, and, I, and I said, do you know what a punk is? And my son said, someone who meditates all day. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. <laughs> he knew what a monk was, but now he knew what a punk was. So, uh, I don't, uh, so uh, anyways, why did, I, why did I just bring that up? Oh yeah, I was some punk kid to this rabbi, but he sat there and worked through every question I had. It was... I, I think about it all the time, uh, uh, that, that experience. But yeah, so thank you. And yeah, Cheryl's point about the bar bat mitzvah at 83 is really powerful also. This idea of a 70 years later or, or 82 uh, for a woman 70 years later it's, is, a, is a beautiful idea, Cheryl. Okay, we have just two minutes left. Is there one more person here? What is happened there? to the whole concept oh, of going to Hebrew high school? I'm sorry, who was that? Carolyn, what happened to the whole idea of Hebrew high school? Oh, um, locally or nationally? Locally, after you, when I graduated from my bas mitzvah, I went just continued on through Hebrew high school. Well, in addition, well, in, in addition yeah. to regular high school. Yeah, locally, you know, I don't want to reflect on organizational dynamics on uh, what might have worked or not worked um, locally for uh, Hebrew high school models. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to others who have the history here in the community of why the Hebrew high school, high school had hundreds and hundreds of kids involved and now uh, only a few dozen is my understanding. Does, uh, I believe it's under a hundred. Um, but, um, but nationally, it's also an interesting challenge that has emerged around this idea of teen engagement um, in various, various levels to this challenge of um, uh, that, that, that has emerged. And, um, uh, and there's too much to say about that in our remaining minute. Maybe we can circle back to that. But raising Jewish teens has become more complicated. Uh, no, it was always complicated, right? But, 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 but new dimensions on why um, uh, teen education in many ways is failing. And parents are kind of giving up. They're kind of giving up on that for various reasons. And that has to do with the demands of public school. It has to do with social media and technology. It has to do with how we think about tikkun alam Judaism rather than school Judaism. Um, there's a number of layers to uh, the problems of teen Jewish education. Anyways, friends, we've thought a little bit today with Malacha 26 around shochet, around slaughter and around blood. And I hope in this vaccination process and in our own experiences of mortality and our, relation, our own relationship to our own bodies and to animal bodies and to blood that we can... Um, uh, continue to see Shabbat as a vehicle of, of an elevated consciousness towards the sanctity of blood 
and towards our moral responsibility to not be a bystander towards the blood of others. Have a great day.